0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Welcome back. To our 17th episode, everybody, and happy new year. It's mid January and we have a vaccine. I don't know when I'm likely to be in line for it, but I I certainly have hope. Um, And as if that wasn't enough, you know, from a deadly riot at our nation's capital to Georgia flipping blue and a dramatic runoff election to the Cleveland Browns football team winning their first playoff game in a quarter of a century, it's already been. A very shocking start to a year that we all thought would be more like beginning of getting back to normal. I am your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me as always is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, these are obviously pretty big stories, and we also have a really great guest this month, but we made a promise to our audience last month, so let's address that first. What did you think of Bill and Ted Face the Music?
1: (laughs) Well, I watched it, first of all. And Happy New Year to you, Rory. Great to be back with <laughs> yep. you. And I uh, already started shopping for my Is It 2022 bumper sticker. <laughs> I don't know when I'll be getting that, but oh, i will putting the, that on the The car. dumpster fire continues, huh? Yeah, no kidding. So, um, sure, yeah, Bill and Ted's. I actually had to watch it twice. This may be a reflection <laughs> of my simple mind, because uh, there was like three or four different time travels going on. That There's a lot. Hard-
0: there's a lot going on yeah yeah t- i actually I, I i have to be honest i cheated i i read a review first too so i kind of knew where everything was headed before we got into it um so i was a little i had some i had some cliffs notes i suppose uh but it was there was so many we're back and forth into the future and to the past and all over the place uh, yeah did you like it
1: that's yeah the well point. i mean it's definitely sophomoric <laughs> but i mean i wouldn't <laughs> expect anything less and you know, anytime you get Jimi Hendrix and Mozart doing a, a jam session, that's pretty cool. That was um,
0: interesting. That was interesting.
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's kind of what I expected, right? Uh, uh, although, you know, with much older main characters than I originally remembered.
0: Yeah, so. yeah, they really did age, didn't they? I I, I don't want to <laughs> say gracefully or ungracefully, but you can definitely see a difference.
1: Yep. Um, particularly in keanu reeves he, yeah he, he, he aged much harder how about that,
0: than how about that? I, I will say the uh, the biggest the most interesting research that i found um was did, did you watch the panama papers documentary did, did you, you, no. know what you know which i'm talking do you know what i'm talking about no okay it's this it was this big documentary from a couple of years ago that's based on uh, i'll just do it really quickly this uh data dump to some reporters uh, all over the world who Uh, dug through all these papers and found that, you know, there is this um, law firm in Panama that is the sort of the clearinghouse for all these world leaders uh, hiding money offshore and doing all this stuff. It was a a pretty big documentary at the time. um, And I thought, you know, I watched it and thought that was great. What I found out is that the guy who plays Bill in Bill and Ted was the director of that documentary. Wow. very weird how uh, he went from Bill and Ted to that and now back to Bill and Ted. Anyway, let's get on to the importance of, of this episode. Glenn, as always, would you do the honors of introducing our guest?
1: Yes, and it's a, it's a true honor this month. We're very excited to welcome PJM CEO Manu Ashtana to the GT Power this month. Uh, Manu came to PJM almost a year ago to the date uh, and certainly when he walked into the job. I don't think any of us could have anticipated some of the challenges he's faced in his first year, and we'll get into that. But before coming to, uh, to us in PJM, he was president of Direct Energy Home in North America, where he oversaw 2,600 people. So he's no stranger to leadership and management. Before that, he previously led power generation operations at Direct Energy and was involved in trading and optimization operations there so uh he's educated here in the city of brotherly love so uh we appreciate that and we're very excited to have him here this afternoon welcome Manu, to the
0: gt power hour
2: hey thank you glenn thank you rory it's great to to be here with you looking forward to the conversation today
0: yeah we really appreciate you coming on the show it's been a, a couple of months in the making and this is one that we've been looking forward to for a while so thank you for doing that glenn you know, uh, we, we got a lot to talk about. Do you want to kick it off?
1: Yeah. Let's, 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 let's throw a first softball right here. Yeah. Not right. Off the bad here, but it's, you've been a year on the job. Like I mentioned earlier, it probably was a year you didn't predict when you signed up for the job. Uh, why don't you just give us a, a review of how that first year went and, uh, your, your, your thoughts and reactions when you're into the job?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, it has been a year. My first day actually on the job was January 1st, uh, 2020 first day in the office was January 6th uh, and it's hard to believe that a year has passed. Mm -hmm. Um, As you said, it, it, you know, I came in expecting a somewhat different year than transpired, but uh, you know, I came to PJM because I wanted to join an organization that made a difference beyond just the walls of the organization made a difference societally and more broadly. Uh, And, and I think the organization has lived up to my expectations. It, it is an important organization. It's filled with really talented, really dedicated people who all are there because they wanna make a difference. Uh, you know, interestingly, the way that we gotta make a difference this year was different than, than I had imagined. It started out with on uh, January 8th or thereabouts, a discussion of this, this virus that was spreading uh, in China very early discussion and a whole series of actions that we can get into today to, you know, to keep our people safe, to keep the grid reliable, uh, and then to continue to work with our stakeholders on uh, so many big issues. Um, so it's been, it's been a really fulfilling year, um, although I have to say different than I expected and difficult in many ways.
1: I mean, that that has to be kind of a a splash of water in the face when the whole COVID situation came at you. I mean, it's totally unprecedented, right? From an RTO perspective. And I mean, you can go through your list, but I mean, if I recall correctly, you had to stand stand up a new control room. You had to go through sequestering protocols. You had to go through travel programs. Can you just maybe just go through that tick list of things you had to address in the first two months when this was thrown at you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it started out with, banning international travel, both to our campus and by our people. And I remember some emails I was getting from visitors that were coming from parts of the world that weren't, you know, weren't in China or in Asia saying, well, what does this have to do with us? And we just, you know, because of the, the importance of keeping our operators safe, we took a pretty strict stance on that to, you know, banning all domestic travel uh, to then, Uh, sending all of our people home, most of our people home, 90% of our people work from home starting March 13th. And we had to keep our operators safe. We, you know, we did so many things all the way from moving from an eight hour uh, schedule for an operator shift to a 12 hour shift so that we had less shift handovers wherever possible in one control room to an operator in another control room. So contactless and modularized Handovers, So that we were trying to minimize basically the number of operators that would be sidelined if if somebody got um, got sick or had a scare uh, to, you know, setting up a third control room. And uh, with a sort of a completely independent air supply um, and then sequestering a group of operators who lived on campus for almost 10 weeks back in May, um, incredible commitment and dedication uh, by these people. Uh, and now we've gone back into sequestering. so uh, we've we've had a couple of teams of people cycle through in one month shifts. We're on our second one month shift uh, since going back into sequestration in December. So really, just keeping the lights on has been job number one. Uh, and I talked a little bit about what we did, but we don't work in a vacuum. I mean, this is a complete partnership with us and our members, our transmission operators, our generation operators who all went through just immense effort to keep their people safe and to keep the grid
1: safe. Yeah, and we've talked about those men and women in your control room a couple of times on this podcast and the incredible sacrifices that they're making there. It's just, you know, when the, uh, the history books are written about this, you know, several years down the line, those are, you know, going to be among the many heroes in this, uh, this whole story because, you know, like you said, giving up their lives to live at PJM. Um, to keep the lights on for everybody else. Just uh, probably can't say enough for those folks. And like we talked on the last podcast, can't wait to get the vaccines in those folks' arms as soon as possible. They, they really, really deserve it.
2: Yeah, I'm very proud of, of them and of all our people who've, who've continued to show up and, and work in pretty much any any way that we've needed them to through this
0: whole period. Well, let's take it back a little bit and talk about what, what were your, obviously these weren't, this wasn't what you intended or expected to do when you, first, uh, when you first took the job. What were your main expectations coming into the job that turned out to be right? And what were the ones that you anticipated that ended up not occurring? Yeah, so I mean, I had
2: three main priorities. I'll tackle your question just slightly differently, but I'll get to it. I had three main priorities coming into the role. Number one was keeping the grid safe and keeping it reliable. The second one was really working with our stakeholders on, on a host of uh, complex and consequential issues that were ahead of us uh, and trying to get to sustainable, durable market design solutions uh, to really take PGM into the future. Uh, and the third priority was working to grow and develop our people. So I came into the organization. I had those three priorities and I had you know, an expectation and a hope that we would we would do that. And I'm happy to say that we were able to do that. Now, some of the ways that we ended up doing that were very different than yeah. I had imagined. And what went into keeping the grid reliable was different, um, but we did it, um, our people did it, and our members did it collectively as a, as a community, we did it. In terms of the complex issues in the stakeholder process, um, uh, you know, we can, we can get into that. I'm happy to talk about the, the main issues, but really when I step back, the big picture is, I feel very good about the amount that our stakeholders uh, and us collectively got done together in 2020. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Probably exceeded my expectations, particularly after we went remote and we were sitting there looking at ourselves and saying, okay, how are we going to do all of these complex things from afar where we can't be in the same room Um, and sort of had to reimagine that whole process? But everyone adapted. And in terms of growth of people, uh, we have continued to focus on that. Again, we we had a bit of a, you know, a moment where we said, okay, how are we going to do that? We're training and leadership development, and uh, and we've just sort of adapted. Uh, so overall, I'd say that um, the organization uh, and our people and our stakeholders have uh, exceeded my expectations coming into the role.
1: That's a really kind of interesting point you're raising there, Manu, because I mean, any one of these issues that we dealt with in 2020 in a normal year would have been huge, but, you know, reserve pricing uh, came out that had to be implemented, moving to a forward looking ENA offset, all the MOPA related issues, fast start pricing. There was a lot that was thrown at the stakeholders in 2020. It really is, is pretty remarkable.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you just look at it, right. The first, the very first thing out of the gate that I, that was sitting in front of me other than Coronavirus, which at that point was not called coronavirus, but was Moper. Uh, and right. December 19th of 2019, we had had a, an order from FERC. And uh, the first sort of big decision was do we ask for rehearing? And if so, why? And we went through uh, a process to think through that. And we did ask for rehearing and we, we tried to lay out our reasoning. Um, but equally, we knew it was important to run an auction. And so we we're trying to walk this line. To, um you know to make sure that the rules were durable, they accommodated our states, but also that we did get get you know a schedule uh, for running the auction. We, we had to go through two compliance filings just on moper after the rehearing request. Uh, but I'm really, really happy that we, we got through them. Uh, we tackled them in a way that involved tremendous input from our stakeholders and oftentimes disparate input where mm-hmm. we couldn't please everyone. Uh, but then we work really hard to be transparent back to our stakeholders around the decisions we made, uh, and finally we've got a schedule for um, for the upcoming auctions, which is really exciting. Two auctions in uh, 2021. So just on that that one issue, that was a pretty full full plate uh, for our team last year. And like like you said, uh, Glenn, there you know reserve pricing, forward-looking ENS offset, ELCCs, a lot of discussion around end of life transmission issues. Oh, I about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, AR, FTR studies,
1: interconnection process workshops, uh, you know, credit whole, reform. We didn't on. talk about credit. Yeah. The credit reforms. At exactly. All. Was in 2020. It was, a, yeah. I, I gave a speech recently and I, I think I called a, uh, 2020, one of the most consequential years in PJM's history. I mean, I really, I think it was on a lot of different levels.
0: There was definitely a lot going on. I I, I did want to get back though, Manu, uh, you did a very good job of avoiding this. I'm not sure if you meant to or not, but uh, what things did you anticipate happening that didn't occur, if anything?
2: Well, I mean, the big thing um, Rory is, I anticipated spending a lot more time with my, with my team, <laughs> sure, right? I mean, imagine coming sure. into an organization, uh, in the middle of all of this and, uh, and being the leader of that organization and only having between January 6th and March 13th in person yeah. with your people and then having to, you know, to, and luckily we had the time to build relationships with each other that we could then build on. Um, uh, and I had time to talk. Uh, to my teams about my leadership philosophy, but you know, that was probably the biggest thing that
0: didn't happen that I wish had ha- happened. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay, let me follow up on that. I mean, what, what have what have you put into place that as as alternatives? I mean, have you have you guys done? I'm I'm sure you've done Zoom calls and those sorts of things. But if you have you thought have you done anything creatively out of outside of the box to sort of um, replicate that that interaction?
2: Yeah. I mean, we have done a lot of, um, uh, a lot of communication, right? So whether it's we, at the beginning, particularly I was recording weekly video messages mm-hmm. to all, uh, all of the team members at PJM and, and not really shying away from anything. So when, you know, the social unrest happened around uh, the killing of George Floyd, for instance, um, you know, we talked about that. We addressed mm-hmm. it. I talked about how I felt, um, yeah, I talked about, um, really what was going on, what was going through my head, my thoughts and my feelings, um, and uh, really focused also on mental health, uh, because it's, uh, uh, you know, it's tempting to think that, that everyone has adapted. And I think many of us have adapted successfully when it comes to delivering work, but it's come at a real cost to people's mental health. So we, we put you know, put a decent amount of focus on making sure people knew that they had resources uh, and that we had resources available to them. A lot of time by our managers reaching out to their people to just check in on people. Um, um, you know, we've had town halls that are that are video town halls where we present and talk about what's going on. So a lot just over trying to sort of overweight communication um, has been a big part of our strategy and, and not just work communication, but, but talking about uh, what's happening in the world what's happening to each of us and trying to keep it pretty authentic
0: yeah i was just going to say i mean i yeah i think that's a really great point about mental health and and that is important have as a second follow-up here have any of your experiences from this year both the pros and the cons have they have they given you any sort of indication on, on like going forward when we do go back into uh being in offices and stuff like that. Are you going to change any any of the processes? Is, is there any anything that has occurred during this that you think has been a positive that you might want to incorporate going forward? Or is it all pretty much just been get through it and let's get back to business as usual? That's a great question. You know, my team and I have been thinking about what does
2: it look like to go back? As, as have, you know, all the leadership teams I think around the country or in the world are thinking about that. Are we ever going to go back to the way it was? Right. Uh, and I think there have been, Some elements of what we've learned through the last year that we probably want to preserve, including um, giving people flexibility to work from home, to work remotely, perhaps being able to access talent from other cities that, you know, people who wouldn't be willing to move, but are willing to telecommute, for instance, um, I think is, is a big opportunity. You know, there's a lot of lot of people, depending on people's personality, who really can't wait to get back to work. And then there's other people who really are pretty happy with the extra time they get with their family. I think the other big question mark for me is, you know, we were traveling at a pretty frenetic pace before all of this happened, and we're able to basically do most of what we were doing on the road, just sitting on a video conference call. So it's not that you never want to travel, but I I imagine that when we get back to get back to the office, our travel is going to be uh, less. I hope it's going to be less. (laughs) I think it was just sort of generally beyond the point of being productive marginally.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It was just sort of travel for the sake of traveling. It wasn't so much. It was just
2: the, it was the norm, right? The norm was that you would travel to go and meet someone for a couple hours. And if you were going to go meet, you'd travel for like five or six hours to go meet someone for a couple
1: hours.
0: Yeah. Well, I think the, the norm has shifted. I, I agree. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely spot on with that.
1: Will that potentially extend to stakeholder meetings too? <laughs>
2: well, I think it's important to have connection with stakeholders. But I imagine our stakeholders are having similar thoughts, right? There's a blend of people, some of whom really want to get back to meeting in person, some of whom are pretty happy that they, they don't have to travel you know, for a meeting to PGM. I mean, I think the other thing that we're thinking about is even when people are vaccinated, a lot of the research suggests that this virus will become endemic. It'll, it'll hopefully mellow out a little bit. Our immune systems will recognize it, but it'll just kind of carry on and we'll carry on with our lives. But there'll be a period of time where we're all still wearing masks even after we've been vaccinated. And so you can actually sometimes have a more personal conversation where you can see someone on the video conference and sit across the table from them six feet away with a mask on. Um, so right. I think our stakeholder process will uh, hopefully also embrace flexibility for people, uh, you know, to give them the choice of what they wanna do rather than create the norm of you have to be there for everything in person. All
1: right, well, you're going to need to figure out a way to ship out the PJM brownies then if we're not going to be coming <laughs> back to Norristown in person.
0: Yeah, we could certainly provide the recipe. Maybe that's <laughs> a- <laughs> I like it. I like it. That's great. A PJM cookbook. That's a <laughs> cr- next Christmas's gift. There well, you go. know,
2: actually, our um, it's funny you say that. Our vendor who, who manages our cafe and our food service has been sending out recipes to our employees uh, <laughs> regularly through this. Uh, because people do miss the food.
0: I, uh, that's I, great. That, believe me, I, I, I think about it on a regular basis. Uh, so Manu, you came directly from a competitive retail background, and that was perhaps a main reason you were hired. What do you think the board saw in you that were differentiating qualities?
2: Yeah, well, I wouldn't presume to speak for the board on it. Uh, but I mean, I can tell you my, my perspective on it. Um, And some of the conversations we had, Uh, and they were really around my background, uh, both in competitive retail, as well as in power generation operations and investment, as well as in trading and supply optimization, as well as on the risk management side. I've previously been chief risk officer of a Fortune 500 company, and I think they saw that perhaps uh, that mix of backgrounds and skills. Um, and, uh, and really wanted to move the organization to a point where uh, PGM was in some ways putting ourselves in the shoes of our members. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think I had a lot of uh, different experiences and background that, uh, that could perhaps empathize with the perspectives of, of our different member teams. Uh, that's sort of my, my take on it, but if you really want to know, you'd have to ask
1: that. <laughs> sure sure all right well let's uh maybe transition to a couple specific issues as you mentioned earlier manu there's a lot uh well a lot happened in 2020 but there's an awful lot on the plate for 2021 as well but let's uh let's maybe start with capacity markets you're gonna have two auctions in 2021 knock on wood are you ready for them and do you anticipate any challenges uh implementing the new MOPA rules going forward
2: yeah um we are uh Certainly, in the process of of uh, preparing for those auctions, and we've got a very clear, deliberate timeline, and we're working through it systematically. So, uh, I'm confident that we will we will have those auctions again. Knock on wood, uh, hoping nothing external disrupts them. But uh, one in one in May, one in uh, December, and we're looking forward to getting back to catching up to a regular schedule uh, at some point soon. But I think it's critical to have those auctions. They send price signals that people rely on for investment, for investment, for demand response, uh, for supply auctions, for all kinds of things. So I think it's critical to have those auctions and we're very committed to doing our best to have those on the schedules we've published.
1: Yeah, I totally get that. And I mean, as as Rory and I, you know, as folks who do a lot of work with folks in various aspects of you know, the space out here, those, getting those auctions up and running is very critical. And whether you're consumer's demand response, traditional supply, what have you, it's, it's, it's very, very important. Yeah, price um, signaling. yeah the price signal is huge. I, maybe just drawing out from that a little bit, talking capacity markets in general. Uh, I know PJM has said on a couple occasions they're not sure the current construct is sustainable, you received a letter from OPSI earlier this month detailing some concerns that the organization of PJM states had with the current construct and suggested some principles moving forward for how um, a conversation could occur about the future capacity markets in PJM. What's your current thinking about the current state of capacity markets and how you see PJM addressing that going forward? I mean, my general take on that, I think it's a great question, is
2: that in the nearer term, there is likely to be less of an impact uh, off the MOPER on capacity auctions and capacity markets. Now, you know, I'm not in the business of projecting prices, so this is a guesstimate. But this, you know, if you think of the number of uh, generators and the types of generators that are exempt from the MOPER, the existing generators, you know, it's logical to come to the conclusion that in the near term, you'll see less of an impact than you might see in, in the medium or long term. The other thing that's important to just remember is that we have tried to give quite a bit of flexibility for generators through the unit-specific process that hopefully will also help people put their best foot forward in the auction. In the medium term, though, uh, you know we hear from our states and we agree there are certain types of uh, generation that may have a tougher time in the capacity market, including things like offshore wind, which if you just look at kind of where the MOPRA floors are for them versus where the cone is, you know, you can reach the logical conclusion that uh, they're going to have a tough time clearing in the capacity auction. And so to the extent that states want to develop those resources, we're very supportive of our state's rights to make those choices. Uh, But it doesn't make sense for the states to have to pay for that capacity twice, once through the capacity auctions we'd run and once through their own uh, selection process for those resources, and so you know that's why we come to the conclusion that we think in the intermediate term uh, to the longer term, uh, the current structure is not sustainable because uh, we we believe our states need to have the right to make the choices they want to make around the resource mix. We also believe, and I think it's worth saying that. We deliver a lot of value to our states and to the consumers in those states through the benefit of our scale, as well as through the benefit of our markets. Um, And so we'd like to continue uh, helping the states deliver their objectives uh, through the power of
0: competition. Since I just finished writing the summary of the of the meeting that occurred very recently on this topic, I'll I'll cover this one, ELCC the effective load carrying capability and the CC, uh, CCSTF I suppose is the meeting. We've got we've had a bunch more meetings come up. Uh, with this, FERC sent out a deficiency letter saying they want more information and a lot of it. Do you foresee any challenges coming up with the information that? FERC is seeking the seven questions that they're looking at. Um, and you know, FERC left the door open for PJM to make changes to the underlying underlying filing. Do you foresee any changes happening to the filing?
2: That's a great question. You know, If you go back to the beginning of when we asked FERC uh, to allow us to work on ELCC with our stakeholders and the amount of time we asked for, uh, we, we receive less time than we asked for. Mm-hmm. And I'm very proud of our stakeholders and of the PJM team for working through this really complex issue, both the modeling side of ELCC as well as the market rules around it. Uh, and stakeholders were able to reach consensus, which I think is a, is a really big win. Because um, uh, you know, there was really a lot of good thinking from everyone around what's right for the market and a lot of give and take to get to that consensus. What ended up happening though, was there were some issues that we uh, said we're gonna tackle those as implementation details. And those are basically issues Frick has come back and said, nope, we'd like to know the answer to those questions now. And I think that's perfectly fair. It just takes a little bit of time. And I'm very committed to working with our stakeholders to get to those implementation details. And and so we've said in our stakeholder process, we'll, we'll ask for a short extension to give us time to do that, uh, but I think in the in that time that we're asking for, we'll be able to work through those questions with our stakeholders, um, and uh, and get back to FERC. Um, and then, you know, obviously, the outcome of those stakeholder discussions will will determine what it is that we we submit to FERC.
0: I mean, so that that sounds like you're leaving the door open that the underlying filing could. Um... There could, be, there could be revisions to that. So- yeah, I
2: mean, I see, th- I see the questions as really clarifications for how the structure that we've put in, that we've proposed would work. So, you know, my base case assumption is that there will not be a change to the filing. There'll just be additional detail added to the structure that we've already proposed. But, I, you know, again, I want to hear from our stakeholders um, to really honor the way that we came to this this filing in the first place. It was, really was a very stakeholder driven filing and i'd like uh, i'd like the input from our stakeholders on on how they think we should answer the additional questions from firm but I, you know the way i view it at the moment is that the questions are clarifying questions mm-hmm. uh, and details implementation details on the structure we've already proposed
1: yeah this strikes me as an issue that it could take you know a couple of years to really work its way through till we get all the details right because obviously the big picture questions are an important one you know, how do you recognize the contributions of certain resources so we're getting the capacity equation right? But I don't know, I just have an inkling that, you know, as we implement this and as we move forward and as we learn more and see more data and see more interaction and see more response from the workplace, uh, or excuse me, from the marketplace, uh, that we'll likely just wanna, wanna keep reexamining this one to make sure we're getting it right. I don't know if you share that view, but just, this just seems one that is so important that it's going to take a little bit of time to get get where it needs to be.
2: Yeah, it's certainly a complex uh, set of issues, and the modeling underlying it is quite complex. And um, right. what we've said is we'll we'll relook at the methodology
0: at the next quarter annual.
1: Yeah, which makes a lot of sense.
0: Okay, anything else on the LCC, Rory? No, I, just, I think it's a really intriguing topic. I'm, I'm glad that I, I did want to say I think the idea to do the short extension is a really good idea to get that I agree. feedback. Um, so, good thinking.
1: Okay, let's talk about reserve pricing. Uh, can you talk to us about PJM's efforts to get an ORDC up and running? I guess in May of 2022, right? That's when we're going to get that thing going. May first, 2022. Yeah,
2: that's right. Uh, we're we're on track for that. Uh, I mean, it was a it was a lot of work by the team and by stakeholders to get to this point. Uh, you know, we, we had the uh, order from Frick and, uh, in 2020 approving the reserve pricing filing, but then they said, hey, you have to change the way you calculate the ENS offset to, to be forward-looking, uh, which is a pretty big ask to come up with a methodology that stakeholders can agree on and that makes economic sense and is simple enough to be executable, but still complex enough to capture the, the nuance of the differences in the units. And, and very proud of the team for working through that whole process. Uh, we actually ended up asking for an extension there as well, if you remember, uh, if you remember, but we have got to the point, we have FERC approval on that. And, you know, we're working through system changes at this point, uh, and are on track to implement by, uh, by May of 2022.
0: Well, you kind of broached this topic at the top in your opening comments, Manu, but let's dig into it a little bit, because it was, I mean, it was probably one of the main stories of pre 2020. You know, when you came into your role, PJM's relationships with states uh, was just it was in bad shape tell us what challenges you faced and how you've addressed them and kind of assess where things are now we just had uh, the announcement with uh, uh, the New Jersey BPU on this um, the state agreement approach for the for the uh, offshore wind study stuff so there, there's some things moving here give us a little inside baseball on how, how that's gone
2: yeah, we've put a lot of energy and effort into improving our relationships with our states and really showing up to the table as partners with them. You know, our states have, and we have very different states in PGM, as you know, and we, some of them have very aggressive environmental agendas, others have different priorities. And, um, and so we've really tried to show up as partners to listen to them, to understand what it is that they're trying to achieve, uh, and then wherever possible, try to help them achieve that. Um, we set up a state policy solutions group, um, and I really have to give a lot of kudos to Asim Haq and his team for, uh, you know, all their work This partnering with states. To me, a lot of this comes down to trust and building a relationship and, uh, and showing up and adding value to them. Uh, and we've worked really hard to, to, to do that both through OPSI as well as through, uh, our states on a, uh, you know, one-to-one basis and in smaller groups as well. So like any relationship, we have to continue to invest in it. The New Jersey announcement was a very exciting development for us and very happy to be able to help New Jersey with their offshore wind objectives. We continue to work with uh, all of our other states that have offshore wind goals as well, similarly to try to help them. So very pleased with the progress in our state relationships. But uh, like any relationship, you have to continue to invest in it all the time.
0: Does the state approach agreement in New Jersey, does that sort of turn the page on that relationship or is there still more work to do? Well, I think
2: there's always more work to do on every relationship. I, I think the state agreement approach with New Jersey is a very big milestone and something I'm very proud of our team and, and really the New Jersey team for coming up with collectively. Uh, but I think there's just, like I said, this is an ongoing effort to continue to work with our states and to support them, um, and so as such, you know, you never are done with that. I think that we're going to be working with them um, perpetually. That's that's our objective.
1: All right. Well, we're talking about the importance of relationships and the importance of maintaining those relationships. Let's talk about the relationship between PJM and the Market Monitor. Uh, this is another one that you know has had a you know up and down history. Uh, relationships can be tenuously. Uh, you can have different views of market rules, different opinions that can run strong. Uh, but ultimately, PJM and the market monitor and the IM's office need to work together you know, very closely on matters. Can you just talk to us a little bit about that relationship and how you see that relationship working moving forward?
2: Yeah, I you know I actually see that relationship as significantly improved and and an important relationship for PJM. And, uh, and I think you have to separate the relationship side of things from the perspectives on market rules. And so we've, we've got a very open dialogue with our IMM. We really value having a strong IMM with the right intentions. And I do believe that, uh, that we have that we've got a, um, uh, an IMM who's an asset to the market. Um, Now we do disagree from time to time with them on um, what we think is the right market design. And, um, and we have that dialogue, but it's, it's been really a civil dialogue that's focused on on uh, ideas and thoughts and data um, and i have uh, I've enjoyed it um, so I think we we have a, a a good relationship with the market monitor, but that doesn't translate into all, we always agree on everything and that's fine
1: yeah that's fair that's fair
0: i I have to say I really think it's important and it's very beneficial to certainly to me, but I think to a lot of stakeholders that the discussions between PJM and the IMM are done in, in out in the open in public and are, you know, able to be witnessed um, the disagreements and, and agreements. It, it just really helps to see where things came and where they moved to on, on issues or where, where PJM started on issues and where they moved to or where the IMM moved to and where the consensus was. It's, 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 it's helpful in ways that I, I think are hard to define, but um, you know, they're more qualitative than anything else, but they're, I know they're really useful to people. So that's, um, it's great that, that that goes on here. Okay. Well, let's transition. I really feel like at some point, Glenn, we we have to get, we have to get some music for this section. I don't know what, what our our music. Yeah. We need some intro (laughs) music for this, but let's transition to, it's become my favorite part of the show. We call this the rapid fire segment where we throw loaded questions at our guest so fast that Manu, you're only going to have time to say the first thing that comes to mind. First off, Best barbecue in Texas. You can name up to three, and the top one can't be Franklin's in Austin, or I'll know you're lying. Go. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm a Lockhart, Texas type of person. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah very so nice. So there's
2: th- three places in Lockhart: Kreitz, okay. Black's, um, um, and Smitty's. Uh, okay. And
0: sort of depending on what you want to eat, um, you got to pick one of them. Okay. Yeah. Th- those are good. I, I've been to, um, I I don't I've never been to the blacks in Lockhart I went to the one in Austin really really like that and there is a place up on the northeast side it's just this random little it's like attached to a gas station um, that uh, I stumbled across years ago and I really love everything they do up there I would love to give them a shout out but I can't even remember their name so Um, good spot though.
1: All right, let's let's uh, let's talk about your charitable work. Uh, LinkedIn uh, mentions that you're involved in several charities in the Texas area. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing on that front?
2: Yeah, yeah, there's some organizations I'm really passionate about. And the, the latest one I've joined is the, the Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce, which is a great organization focused on a great city. You know, I still remain very connected to Houston as well. Um, I consider myself a Houstonian at heart. Um, and so the food bank in Houston is an organization I have a lot of passion about. Just given particularly COVID, the the level of demand in the community is incredible. Uh, So it's an organization that does a lot of good. And then Texas Children's Hospital uh, is is another organization that I have tremendous uh, passion to support. So I've been really lucky to be able to, uh, uh, to have the chance to be associated with such great organizations.
1: Uh, Those are those are three good ones. And uh, as you'll quickly discover, Phil Abundance is a great local charity here in the Philadelphia area. I've actually done some work with them and uh, and I'm a big fan of the the Children's Hospital University of Pennsylvania. Um, And Rob Wonderling at the chamber. He and I served in the Ridge administration way back in the day. I knew him when he was deputy secretary of transportation Then he went on to be a state senator. Now he's doing wonderful things for the Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce. So uh, that's a good list there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the organizations you name are are fantastic as well.
0: Yeah, on Phil Abundance. So uh, I'm I'm getting married early next year and we just signed our catering contract. And in that contract it says uh, if um if for some reason the event gets canceled and they made food and we can't we won't be able to eat it, we don't get the money back, but they will donate it to Philabundance and we were I was kinda I was a little annoyed at first, but on second thought, I was like, all right, I can get behind that. That's fine. Yeah, you, you can do that. And that sounds like a really great use. Um, well, congratulations on getting married. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's we're, we're very excited. It'll be a Philadelphia wedding and uh, it's going to be a fun time on that topic. So you went to well, sort of on that topic. You went to UPenn's Wharton School, like soon to be former President Trump. Do you also believe that bad things happen in Philadelphia? Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question.
2: Uh, I, I think Philadelphia is a great time. Uh, and I think it's uh, obviously it's changed a lot since I went, went there, but uh, it's been great to move back. I, I think mostly uh, very good things are happening in Philadelphia and I'm excited to be here.
0: I was so excited when he made that comment because I immediately went on Twitter and Instagram. And like, like clockwork, within 20 minutes, there were people who had t shirts and all kinds of stuff. Like the city just owned that comment so fast. Uh, they were just I, just, I knew immediately as soon as he said it, this was going to be a viral thing. And, and of course it was. And that's a, it's a testament to the attitude around here that I, I, I certainly enjoy. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I,
1: I had the same reaction. I loved it when he said that. <laughs> I mean, you just knew that
0: was something that was going
1: to have a lot of legs. Yep. Uh, yep. Speaking about legs in Philly, Philly's a great sports town, but you lived in Houston, Dallas, and Chicago, which are all great sports towns. Uh, any comparisons you want to offer there?
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not actually, uh, I don't have that much time for sports. I,
1: I'm,
2: uh, I'm sorry to say I,
1: I work too much,
2: but uh but of all the cities I've lived in, Philadelphia seems to have the
0: most uh, enthusiastic sports fans. Mm, okay, for sure. Right, right answer. Right answer. That is a good answer. Philadelphia has Temple University. Houston has Rice University. Which one does an Al mascot better?
2: <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to have to go with Temple because my older son right. is, uh, is a freshman at Temple. So,
0: okay, uh, go Al. <laughs> I'm a I'm a I'm a graduate, so uh, I. I Good for him. He's enjoying it. Good. All right, so uh, we we heard you like tennis. On a scale of comparative dominance, is Serena Williams the GOAT? Yeah, I'd have to say, I mean, 23 uh, Grand Slam singles titles.
2: um, She's an incredible tennis player, an incredible athlete, Uh, just uh, remarkable.
1: Now, this is one of my favorite questions that we've asked a bunch of our previous guests this questions. Who do you consider your role models and mentors?
2: I've been lucky to have a lot of people in my career um, step up and, and show me the way. Um, and so I look up to, to, to all of them. If, if I had to pick someone overall who I'm just really influenced by, I, I'd have to go with uh, Nelson Mandela. Mm. Uh, you know, and this is sort of beyond work. It's just the ability to, to try to be bigger than the circumstances of what what you're handed in life, and and to uh, uh, to make a difference in the world, uh, to me has been amazingly inspirational and influential. Uh, and you know, I try to I try to do five percent of the <laughs> uh, of the uh, the difference making that he did, uh, but he continues to his story continues to inspire me.
0: As I've mentioned multiple times on the podcast, I'm a big rugby fan and the story behind in the, the movie Invictus, Invictus and the story yeah, behind it, is, yeah. it uh, is just a great, great use. And if, if you've ever seen the movie, you know, you see the Nelson Mandela in there, you know, he wasn't even really a rugby fan himself, but knew that this is what the country needed uh, they were hosting the, uh, the World Cup that year and knew that what was needed was for their team to do very well and to sort of bring um, uh, reconciliation to the country. And it, it's just, uh, you know, Morgan Freeman does a, really good, does a really good job in the role and the story itself is really good. Um, and it just sort of just shows you the, the, the vision and insight that the man had. Okay. Favorite local attraction that you have discovered since moving to suburban Philadelphia? Wissahickon Park. Ah, that's a good Definitely. one. I like yeah. that one. Yeah. Really enjoy getting out there walking.
2: Yeah,
1: that's a good one for sure. All right. Um, first of all, shout out to uh, Commissioner Neil Chatterjee, who's probably listening <laughs> to us on the treadmill right now and rounding mile six. Uh, but when you were on his podcast, you once said that Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl was a book that was very influential to you. We're curious what book is on your nightstand right now? Well, I've got it right next
2: to me actually. So it's it's a book called The Chameleon um, uh, that's about uh, different personality profiles. So it's something my team and I are doing together. To your earlier question about how are we trying to stay connected? We're looking at our personality profiles and talking about uh, you know how we differently process um, process the world and how we like to communicate and be communicated to. Oh,
1: so there's a PJM book club, secret club. That's interesting. They did not yeah, know It's not that. quite
2: a PJM book club, but yes, it's a, it's a, it's a work book activity. Work book activity.
0: Okay. <laughs> like Fair it. enough. Like All right. Last one. What's the toughest decision you've had to make so far as CEO at PJM?
2: You know, the decisions around the, uh, the actions we took, with COVID, the precautions were really hard because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, they came so rapidly one after the other, after the other. And every decision we made, it felt like we were way overreacting. And then like one week later, it felt like, oh my God, we're on to the next decision. Wow, and yeah. That one wasn't enough. And so it was just yeah. trying to keep up with the pace at which this thing exploded
0: um, it was, uh, was quite an experience. I, I imagine, I imagine. Okay, I, I said that section was our favorite, but I lied. This is actually our favorite section. Uh, it's time for the section of our show in which we offer unsolicited advice to anyone whom we think needs it. You have two minutes to level one-on-one with anyone, anywhere, on anything you think he or she needs to hear. Manu, who are you going with, and what are you saying?
2: It's a great question. Uh, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with my fellow citizens. Okay, uh, and uh, You know, I I have to say just as a reminder that, and I say this to my people as well at PJM, but people have different political persuasions, they have different beliefs, they have different identities, gender identities, sexual orientations. And I have friends from across the spectrum on any of those elements. And we have so much in common and so much to uh, appreciate and learn from each other that I would urge us all to focus on each other's humanity and what it is that we have in common uh, and reject the divisiveness uh, that seems to be everywhere today. Uh, if, if there's one piece of advice that I could give, uh, that's it.
0: That's a good one. I think, there, it's yeah, I think
1: Nelson Mandela advice. would approve of that. Yeah,
0: agree. Glenn, uh... I I always know that you've got something queued up. Who are you going with this month?
1: Well, it's not every day that I get a captive audience. So I'm going to take (laughs) advantage of the fact and offer two minutes of advice to Manu Ashtana. Oh. (laughs) So, uh, and it it concerns the upcoming uh, discussions on capacity markets. Certainly, you know, all indications from PJN and FERC. It looks like we're headed into sort of another round of some pretty significant discussions about capacity markets. We talked about the OPSI letter, what have you, and I have actually some pretty straightforward advice, and it's it's this: it's be mindful how of how long and how hard it was to get where we are right now, when we're thinking about where we want to go next. And Rory, I think has heard me tell this story when I came on to the Pennsylvania Commission in May of 2001. I'm sure I went through a similar transition, like Manu went through, where you you yeah, try to spend the first couple of weeks and months getting your arms around the organization, getting a pulse of the organization, trying to figure out, you know, what the priorities are and then actually sitting down and, and figuring out what you want to get done while you're in that job. And I developed my list of five or six things. And I think number three or four on that list was fix the PJM capacity market. And again, this was back in May of 2001. And here we are 20 years later and, you know, I look at all the work that's been done at capacity markets and if there's one issue that's really, um, you know, been a common theme over the years through PJM, it's, it's trying to work to get these capacity markets in, in a slightly better spot. Um, you know, if you look at the capacity markets we had 20 years ago, uh, there was no locational del- lo- delivery areas, there was no demand curve. I think it was a one month forward auction versus a three year forward auction and there was a daily auction uh, demand responses role was vague. Um, questions about internal capacity, questions about buyer side market power, questions about sell-side market power. And there's just a lot of issues that have been addressed over the years that have really, really served to improve this construct. Um, is it perfect? No. Are there challenges and warts? Sure. Uh, but I suspect it's just the nature of capacity markets that there always will be. But when I look at the prices consumers are paying for capacity and the level of reliability they are getting for those prices at a time when we're dramatically changing the environmental profile of the generation fleet, there's an awful lot of good that has been done and that good should not be thrown away on the prospect of a different solution that some may see in better, but in reality likely will have flaws that will be eventually revealed. So let's welcome the conversation. Let's embrace the conversation. Conversations are healthy. It can be productive. It's always good to challenge our assumptions and think um, think thoroughly and deeply on issues like capacity markets. However, when it comes time to think about solutions, let's, let's be careful. It has literally taken decades to get where we are. Warts and all, capacity markets are accepted at a high level are generally doing their job. Let's not, not let our search for the perfect be the enemy of the pretty good. And that, Rory, is my two minutes of advice this morning. Wow, wow.
0: Thanks, Glenn. Those are, <laughs> those are points well made. I was just gonna ask you if you if you wanted some rebuttal time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, what, what I'll say is, I think two things. One, um, uh, a lot of, almost everything that'll happen with regard to this market will be informed by, driven by our stakeholders um, and stakeholders writ large. So, like you, I, I think uh, conversation is a good thing. Speaking for myself, uh, my philosophy is that the smallest change that gets the desired outcome is what you should do when thinking about market design. But again, uh, I think this will be a stakeholder discussion, and we'll see what the stakeholder appetite is for um, a change. If uh, you know, and then we'll take it from there.
0: Well, uh, as, as I've also mentioned on the podcast before, I am a, uh, a big Washington football team fan. I've been a fan of them for uh, for well, ever since I can remember. And we had a we had a we had a surprise season this year. So my two minutes, and it will be significantly less than two minutes are for Coach Ron Rivera, coach, We had a great season quarterback was our big issue. I know we need to get another one. I know Alex Smith is not going to be the long-term guy and we got rid of Dwayne Haskins. So he's obviously not him, but please, whatever you do, don't trade up in the draft and try to get, make a big splash with a first round pick, get a guy in the middle round somewhere, someone we can develop, someone who's hungry, someone who wants to fight to be a good starting quarterback. That's the only thing I ask. And Please listen to me. I'm sure he listens to this podcast, so, so that, should, <laughs> that should really make a difference. All right. Clock management. While we are called the GT Power Hour, we pride ourselves on never actually taking the full hour, and I kept my comments for Coach Rivera short for this reason. So please use those bonus minutes in this hour to ponder what it will be like when you can see the bottom half of people's faces again. All right. Final thoughts. Thank you again, Manu, for being here and uh, giving us some insight on on your first year. Before you head back to the bunker there in Autobahn, do you have any final thoughts for us?
2: Yeah, just thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
1: How about you, Glenn? Yeah, no, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. You know, and, you know, we probably don't thank you and your team enough for all you do, Manu. I mean, the the folks at PJM, I've I've had the honor and privilege of working with them since 1995 in various capacities. And, you know, I I still remember to this day my first visit to PJM and how just awestruck I was that, you know, the dedication of the men and women there in Norristown. And that continues to this day. So you're you're privileged to lead a wonderful organization. And, you know, we applaud everything you're doing to take it to the next level. Thank you so much.
0: Yes, thank you very much. And as we always say, be excellent to each other. Until next time, everybody. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com That's G-T P-O-W-E-R G-R-O-U-P.com Thanks again and we'll see you next time.